I heard a story about a little boy who was starting his first day of first grade. And so first grade, full day. Uh, previous year in kindergarten, he only went to half day kindergarten. And so he was only used to going to school for half the day and then at noon, around noon, being able to go home. <coughs> the problem was he didn't quite realize that reality yet the first day of first grade. And so when it came time for lunch, he thought it was time to go home. And so he went to get all of his things together and put them in his backpack. Well, his teacher saw this and it's not uncommon for her to, you know, encounter kids in, in, in his uh, place. And so he, she asked him what he was doing. He said, well, I'm getting ready to go home. And so she tried to explain to him as gently as she could that it wasn't time to go home yet. She said, honey, uh, this is just lunch. Then after lunch, we're going to come back here. And then we're going to do some more work for a little bit. And then after that, around 3 o'clock, then you can go home. A little boy just looked at her in utter disbelief, not sure if she's joking or not, but once he realized that she was being serious, he crossed his arms and said very matter-of-factly, who in the world signed me up for this program? <laughs> How many of you feel that way sometimes? Maybe you moms feel that way sometimes, right? Who signed me up for this program? I, I think we've all had those moments in our lives. And I'm guessing that we've had a few of those moments in our faith journey as well. And in particular, as it relates to our faith and doubt series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks, I think it's easy to, to, to feel that way, especially when we've been asked a question about God as, as Christians. When, when there are questions or maybe a personal question that we've been asked or just some doubts and uncertainties that we may feel about God that we just can't answer that we don't know how to, to answer that question, or we can't, don't feel like we can give a satisfactory answer for that. And I'm guessing that more than a few of us have been in that, uh, in that situation. Uh, last week, we talked about one of those questions that sometimes is a struggle to try and answer, that people wonder about when it comes to matters of faith and, and doubt today. Uh, the question we looked at is, why doesn't God give us more proof? Why doesn't God give us a sign? I mean, if God's all about faith and believing in Him, why doesn't He just give us all a concrete, over-the-top, undeniable encounter with him so that there's no way of denying that. We talked about that question last week, and uh, if you weren't here with us, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, lesson. And today I want to continue by addressing another common question, then we'll talk about a third one next week, so I encourage you to be here for that as well. And really, these three questions, I think, are three of the more common questions when it comes to matters of faith and, and doubt in our lives, both with believers and unbelievers. And as I said last week, I'll say it again this week. I'll say it again next week. I don't have a definitive once and for all answer. My, my, my hope is not to, not to, to, to I, I'd love to definitively answer it, but I, I, a, I don't know if we have enough time just in one sermon to answer that question. And I don't have the brain capacity to answer that. I'm not God. I don't have the full, and believers have wrestled with these questions. Non-believers have wrestled with these questions. Uh, my hope, though, is to at least get us thinking about it and start us down a path where we start some conversations and we realize that we are all in different you know, boats as far as this, these issues are concerned, and to be able to come together and talk about those things and realize that this is part of the journey. Issues of faith along with doubt. As I said from the very beginning, the sermon series is not called Faith or Doubt. It's Faith and Doubt. How do we walk out our journey of faith and still recognize these questions that we wrestle with? But I do want to at least try and address it as best I can because these are questions that a lot of people are dealing with. And so the question I want to answer 
or ask today and hopefully try to answer goes something like this. Why not a better product? In other words, if, if Christianity is true, and if God is real, and if Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, which we as Christians believe, then why aren't the people who claim to follow him better advertisements of him? And why doesn't God speak up more about that? Why isn't the product better? And there are plenty of things that point to the defectiveness of the product, the degree to which Christians bicker and fight over petty, petty issues, the moral failings of Christians in general, and especially as we see more high-profile Christian leaders, uh, the all-too-quick uh, and judgmental attitudes of many Christians and many Christian spokespeople. The fact that down through the centuries on top of that, uh, there have been some terrible things that have been done in the name of Jesus, in the name of God. I'm not saying that those necessarily were or weren't Christians, but they did them in the name of Jesus, whether they were or were not. They claimed to be. And then on top of that, consider the fact that there are some people in our world who don't profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and yet appear to have better lives and do more good in our world than some believers do. Those and even other issues come up when we talk about this particular subject. And when we take all of these into account, as well as those other things, perhaps we can see why the question of why not a better product is one that's relevant. It's one that's worth digging into, even if we can't fully answer it, to at least try and attempt to have the conversation. and can be a real stumbling block for a lot of people in their faith journey. So what's the answer to that question? I don't know all the answers, but uh, let me just offer at least a few thoughts. First of all, I think it's worth noting, and this is not really an answer, but it is worth at least bringing up, Jesus lamented over this issue as well. You know, Jesus didn't, it's not like Jesus just glossed over this and, and we're, we're just called to just gloss over this reality. I mean, Jesus dealt with it in, in different ways and, and you know, Places like in Mark chapter 7, he confronts the religious leaders of the day. And, and he says in verses 6 through 8, he says, Isaiah was right, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament was right, when he prophesied about you, hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Later on in Mark, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is lamenting over his disciples. There's a different uh, episode. His disciples, man brings uh, his child to uh, his disciples to be cured, and his disciples cannot cure him. And Jesus laments over this reality of his disciples' failure to live up to his name, and he cries out in verse 19, You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? And so Jesus lamented over this reality as well. God doesn't it's not that God just glosses over this. But let me also speak to those times when followers of Jesus maybe are seemingly sometimes outdone by the goodness that we see in non-believers. That's a question that gets brought up. Well, I see people who are not Christians acting better than people who are Christians. And that leads me to a second reflection I want to share with you today. That goodness in non-believers does not invalidate the reality of our need for or the reality of Jesus. Does that make sense? So, just because we see people who are not Christians doing good things does not invalidate the reality of or our need for Jesus. Now, the fact is that there are many people in our world who don't profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And yet, they live moral lives 
that have made significant contributions for the betterment of our world. It does no good to ignore that and say, well, no, that's not good, right? So, so what do we do with that? What, what do we say about that? Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts as we kind of frame, start to frame some of this. James writes this in James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every, how many? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. James goes on to say in, in uh, James chapter 3, verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, that's an important thing, full of good fruit, impartial and sincere. One of the reasons I bring up these verses in particular is because they shed light on the fact that every expression of goodness, every expression of true wisdom, true justice, true beauty in our world ultimately comes from one source, from God. And even though there may be people in this world who don't profess Christ, and yet still have a measure of goodness about them and do good things, that doesn't invalidate the reality of God or Jesus. In fact, in many ways, it actually validates even more the reality of God and a divinely given morality and truth of what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Because God is the source of every good and perfect gift, and that includes those in the lives of non-believers as well. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be as Christians. I'm not saying we shouldn't be challenged and even at times convicted by the fact that there are non-believers who are doing better work in our world or who seem to have better lives than what some Christians do. But I don't think the solution is to tear down non-believers, to diminish the good that is being done, nor is the solution... To feel like our belief in God is somehow discredited or invalidated by their goodness. Because scripture tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above. Or think about this. In Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is talking about secular governmental authorities. And Rome is in charge at the time. And Rome certainly does not confess Jesus as Lord. Uh, Caesar is Lord. And yet listen to what Paul writes, starting in verse 1. It says, let everyone be subject... To the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And then verse 4, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Now that doesn't mean that the authorities always do exactly what is good and right, but that God has set up authorities and governments for our good. And God is the ultimate giver of authority. Paul also writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, including kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Why pray for those in authority? Because God can and does work through those in authority, even those who don't profess belief in Jesus as Lord. And so when wisdom or justice or peace is worked out through someone or something in our, in our world, non-believer or believer, that doesn't invalidate the reality of God or of Jesus. Again, if anything, it testifies to the reality of God or Jesus and that God doesn't simply work through us as believers, 
But He works through everyone to accomplish His purposes and His power and His workings. Of course, the next question that comes up then is, okay, well, if there are believers, or excuse me, if there are non-believers who are acting as good as believers, then why do I need to be a believer, right? So, so if, I, if, I, if I can live morally, quote-unquote, as a non-believer, then why do I need to become a believer? Why do I need to follow Jesus? Well, again, there's a lot... There's more that can be said about the answer to that question than I can even, A, hope to comprehend, uh, or B, to even convey to you in one sermon, or even a sermon series, or even just a few moments, much less. But let me just give you a few things to think about, okay? First, when we talk about doing some good things, quote-unquote, or living morally good, quote-unquote, lives, good compared to who? Right? That's an important question. Like, who's my standard of goodness? Right? Because I can look at certain standards and I can compare and I can be good compared to them. But that's not the standard. Because compared to the goodness of the perfect Son of God, no matter how much good a person may do, there's still plenty of bad and sin in our nature and in our lives that falls short of that standard. And that we need to be delivered from. And there's a price to be paid for falling short of that standard. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And so just because you may do some good things and live a morally good life, there's no saving yourself from that reality. There's no saving yourself from the penalty of your sins. That can only come through the saving blood of Jesus Christ. And even more than that, to live a life of doing good over the long haul and taking on evil and injustice and suffering in our world eventually requires us to look to something beyond ourselves, to a sustaining power and hope that is beyond us and greater than ourselves to hope, hopefully combat those things that we see in our world. Because the forces that we are contending with are too much for us in and of ourselves. By the way, um, it's not to say that we shouldn't do good in this world. That's part of why God has us here, is to do good. But I can also tell you that the forces that we are working against want all of us, Christians or non-Christians, to focus more on the good we do in this world than on salvation and eternity and what those good works are preparing us for. And ultimately pointing us to. Does that make sense? And so it's good. We, we ought to be doing good. And I want to celebrate the good that both believers and non-believers do, because ultimately all of that comes from God. But there's also a life beyond this life. And that only comes through the hope and salvation that is found through Jesus Christ. And so while all of this does at times highlight the effectiveness or lack thereof of the product, and we most certainly ought to be challenged by it and convicted by it, I don't think it invalidates the reality of or our need for Jesus. Let me also say this. Each one of us knows people in our lives who do good and yet don't profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In fact, there are some sitting here that don't, right? First, we can thank God for the good that they do. But second, I pray, and I hope you also pray, that God would use you to help them grow in their understanding of who He is and ultimately in their relationship with Him because they need Jesus just like I do and just like you do. 
Speaking of meeting Jesus, that leads me to a third point when it comes to the lack of a better product. And it's this, that Jesus' teachings don't fall short of us. We fall short of Jesus' teachings. In other words, when it comes to the lack of a better product, what's the old line? It's not you, it's me, right? It's not, it's not him, it's you, <laughs> and it's me, right? We, we fall short of him, not him falling short of us. So let me address another thing. I, I, I'm kind of trying to come at this from a different angle than maybe we, we often think about. But let, let me address another issue that, that many non-Christians bring up. Maybe some of you even wrestle with this reality too when it comes to Christianity. You know, down through the centuries, people who call themselves Christians have been involved in some pretty not good things when it comes to those things, things being done in the name of God or in the name of Jesus. People who call themselves Christians have done a lot of horrible things. And it does no good as, as Christians for us to deny those things or to minimize those things or try and justify those things. The product has been pretty defective at times. I mean, from I'm not just talking about like simple incongruence in our lives of what we practice and what we preach, but even the extent of some pretty horrible things down through the years that have been done in the name of God and Jesus. And I'll say more about that in, in just a second. But let me also take a moment and acknowledge that this is part of the reason why there is a renewed call in our in our American culture, when it comes to doing away with all religion in general, but namely doing away with Christianity. And in particular, over the last couple of decades, we've even seen a more... So you had... I don't want to get too deep into this, but previously, you've always had people who don't believe, right? And again, some of you sitting here don't have a faith and a trust in Jesus Christ. I'm glad you're here. Um, but there's always been a, 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 an atheistic approach to God, right? But now what we're seeing is this new atheism. And so it's not just that we're, you know, people are touting atheism, but they're bashing God. And so it is a, a pushback even more so than just saying, I don't believe. It is to then criticize and attack Christianity specifically. And one of the points they're trying to make is that religion is by far the greatest threat to civilization. There's a guy by the name of Steven Weinberg uh, who put it this way? He's a noted atheist. He said, good people do good things. And maybe you've heard this quote before. Good people do good things, and bad people do bad things. By the way, it's not that simple, right? No. It's not that simple. But here's his point. To get good people to do bad things, that takes religion. And that mentality and that thought process is where there continues to be this movement to remove religion, specifically Christianity, from our culture altogether. But one thing to think about is, have we as humans, let me ask you this question, have we as humans had a better product when we tried to have societies that sought to eliminate God or faith or religion altogether? And the answer, you know, some might answer it in affirmative. The answer, though, what history tells us, and obviously what we as Christians believe, but what history tells us, it's factual, is that's an emphatic absolute no. I like what John Ortberg writes, and this is not just him writing it, these are facts. The greatest bloodbaths in the history of the human race occurred in the 20th century in countries that sought to eliminate God, worship, and faith. Stalin is thought to have been responsible for at least 20 million deaths, with some estimating that number to be as high as 35 million. Mao Zedong in China was reportedly responsible for something like 70 million deaths. Hitler in Nazi Germany was responsible for around 10 million deaths. Pol Pot in Cambodia ran an atheist regime where it's estimated that 20% of the population of his entire country was massacred under his hand. 
He goes on to say, here's a little thought experiment. Imagine a society with no religion, no faith, no God. By the way, it has been attempted. Does it seem likely that in that society, no one is going to covet someone else's money or someone else's house or someone else's spouse or that people who think and look and act differently are suddenly going to just magically submit to and serve one another? It's hard to imagine that by simply doing away with religion, greedy people will become generous. Angry people will become merciful and we'll all just get along and live happily ever after. To do away with God and faith altogether isn't the solution to all the garbage that human beings do in the name of God. But the question still remains, what about the garbage? That's still a legitimate question. And I think it's worth noting that God won't let his own people off the hook when it comes to accountability. It's not just because it's been done by someone else doesn't mean we just get to push the, the buck forward. It's worth noting what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. He says, it's time for judgment to begin, and it begins where? With you and me, with the house of God. But again, when you think about the, some of the stuff that has been done, that Christians have done, let me ask this question. Was all that terrible stuff the outcome of Jesus' teachings falling short of us, or the outcome of us falling short of the teachings of Jesus and violating them? The Jesus who said, love your enemies. The Jesus who said, bless those who persecute you. The Jesus who said, when somebody hits you, turn the other cheek. The Jesus who said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Arthur Burns was a Jewish economist who had great influence in Washington during the tenure of several U.S. presidents. And he was once asked to pray at a gathering of conservative Christian politicians, and he prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, I pray that you would bring Jews to know Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bring Buddhists to know Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bring Muslims to know Jesus Christ. And then he wrapped up his prayer by praying, and Lord, I pray that you would, know, you would bring Christians to know Jesus Christ. I think about that prayer when I think about how we, as Christians, and certainly we can talk about all of the things that have been done in the name of God, but I also think about how we as Christians, um, even in our incongruence, aren't always the advertisements that we ought to be for Jesus. But we need to remember that that's not a reflection of His, his teachings. It's a reflection of us not living up to those and violating His teachings and His life that He calls us to. And it shows us that we still have a long way to go, right? My point is not to bash us. My point is to realize... This is a journey. And we need to really, really wrestle with some of these questions that people are wrestling with. And when his followers fail and come up short, that doesn't mean that he has failed and come up short. But when this kind of stuff happens, hopefully our response is like that of the Father in Mark chapter 9, who, when failed by Jesus' followers, presses through to Jesus and says, I do believe, but help me on this journey. Help me overcome my un." belief. And speaking of when we as Jesus' followers fail and come up short, that leads me to one more response. The lack of a better product reminds us that we are all continuously construction projects. We are all under continuous construction. I think about the uh, response of author Evelyn Waugh, who was a Catholic and by his own admission fell woefully short of his faith standard. Someone asked him one time, they said, how can you Sorry, let me say. 
they asked him, how can you call yourself a Catholic and be so badly behaved, so mean, such a jerk, and so spiteful? And Wall responded, just imagine if I weren't a Catholic. <laughs> Some truth to that. But in all seriousness, we are all, all of us, like Michigan roads. We're under constant construction, right? And there's potholes all over the place. And we need some work. We're like the home remodeling project that never seems to end this side of the grave. There will always be something in our lives that needs to be repaved, rebuilt, touched up, fixed up, replaced, overhauled, fumigated, you name it. We are all deeply flawed people who are marked more by our continual and perpetual need for forgiveness than we are by our nearness to the perfect standards of Jesus Christ. Paul confessed in Romans chapter 3 that all, including himself, fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And as you read through Paul's writings, it's clear that the longer he went along in his faith journey, the more he grew in his awareness of the fact of his own of that fact in his own life. So much so that towards the end of his life, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he writes these words. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's all good and well. I think all of us can, can probably, you know, at least maybe give some semblance of that reality. But then Paul says these words, of whom I am the worst. Not just along with the rest of you. Not just in the middle of the pack, but I am the worst. Not because he considered himself to be, you know, some horrible person, but because he realized just how much in need of God's grace he was. And how sinful he was. And the longer he went on his journey, the more and more he became aware of that reality. And yet, truthfully, it's hard sometimes for us to come to that reality. We focus on a whole lot of other things. We play the comparison game and compare ourselves to, you know, whoever down the street or whoever in, in the past. Man, I can take Hitler and I can take Pol Pot and I can take Mao Zedong. And compared to them, I look fantastic, right? But the more we truly take inventory of our own lives, oftentimes the more we see just how flawed and sinful and defective we are. And yet here's the good news. Jesus came to call all of us defective products. He says in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Of course, the reality is that there are no righteous to be called. Only sinners. But the good news is that He calls. And He calls to us over and over and over again. And He has to because you and I are a continual work in progress. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18, we are all being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Not that we have been transformed, but we are being transformed each and every day. Because we are all lifelong construction projects. No doubt about it.